0: Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist's Private Podcast. We're here with the writer, Jeff Goines. He's the author of, of this book, Real Artists Don't Starve, which is what we are talking about today. We're really talking about how to be more creative. We're going to answer a bunch of your surprise questions as well. But first, we have this little segment, Jeff. It's called More About Less. And it's where we read an article as a jump-off point. So I printed out an article you wrote a decade ago for minimalists.com. <laughs> oh, crap, and we we haven't done guest essays in like about a decade. Wow. Yeah, and um, you're one of the few guest essays that are up on our website. Mm-hmm. And uh, I figured we would just read this as a jump-off point. Yeah, I know maybe some of the things you agree with. You may disagree with yourself here. I'll be. I thought it'd be interesting, but totally. I thought I'll, I went back and read this. I was inspired by it. Really? Yeah. Cool. This is called "Downsize Your Life, Live Your Dream." And we'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. You wrote, These days, everyone seems to be talking about finding your dream and living your passion. So many people are talking about it, but so few are actually doing it. What's going on here? Mm. All the gurus are saying the same thing. Do more. Start new habits. Get more disciplined. Do, do, do. But what if that's not an option for you? Most of us don't have more time to freely spend on a new activity. We are maxed out, exhausted, and growing increasingly disillusioned with promises we hear and see on television and billboards. But maybe there's another way. What if the road to finding your life's work was actually quite simple? What if it required you to do less? Mm. We'll put a link to the article so you can read the whole thing. But I wanted to use that as a jump off point because I think quite often we want to pursue a creative pursuit. It's How can I fit one more thing into my day? what you're really talking about there is decluttering your calendar in a way so that you're making room. You're actually doing less, but you're doing more things that are meaningful to you.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it sort of reminds me of a health coach who said, you know, most diets don't work because they're based on restriction, you know? And so you're focused on the thing that you're cutting out, which is in some ways sort of a contradiction to this, but, but I don't think it is. And she said, like, don't change anything, just add something like eat broccoli, like just add something good mm. to your life. And I think that's the heart of what I was trying to say there. And I don't remember writing any of that, but it sounded pretty good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it did sound good. It fun to like, Oh, hi. who was that? Oh that yeah. Wrote that. Yeah. But I think my experience at the time, especially, and my life has gotten simpler the more I've gone down this path of becoming who I am and, and, and being true to my, my art, as it were, and uh, I, like find something that you love hmm. and do it every day. I mean, it's so trite, you know, but like hmm. find something that you love and do it every day and you will be surprised by how much stuff just sort of falls to the wayside. And you just, uh, that's my experience, even with like the internet, you know? Like I felt like, do you remember like starting out with the blogging thing and we didn't know what we were doing oh, and, yeah. and you just ah, maybe I'll do Twitter. Like remember when Instagram was just a way to take cool pictures, uh-huh. you know? i like, I guess I'll try this, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and you had to do everything and be everywhere until you kind of found your lane. And then you realize how many things you don't have to do to do the one thing that only you can do. And that, that's amazing. That's a really good feeling of just going, this is what I do and this is all that I do. And I may have a dozen ways that I do it, but all that other crap is just like seasoning."
0: And it's yeah. really tempting to add more things in. I was talking to Professor Sean over there. We have both of the Seans are are here today, and uh, that that's the name he got. Professor, I saw the yeah. I saw the voting happening. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we, we, we did a whole poll, yes. and um, he didn't pick the name, so we decided we we'd, we'd allow it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Professor Sean, he uh, he helps my writing class. Uh, how to write better. dot org, and uh, one of the things that we we're even talking about amongst ourselves was like, it's really tempting because we, we offer a writing class. That's the only thing right. that, that we offer, right? It's not like, well, then you have these other 17 things you can sign up for. Oh, like, no. no, we give away a bunch of things for free and videos and a free ebook that you can download, 15 ways to write better. But ultimately we sell one thing. Right. It never goes on sale. Like it's like, well, the, sign up now and it's 50% off. No, 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 mm-hmm. we, we created this premium thing that adds immense value to people's lives. Mm-hmm and people sign up for it, and it's the one thing we offer. And it's really tempting to say, all right, what can we bundle on top of it? What, totally. well, what other things can we sell? What other verticals can we integrate? And then it's like, now, it doesn't mean that it's wrong to try other things. In fact, in the book, there, there's a section where you talk about uh, broadening your um, creative approach. So you're not so myopic. And I, I think that was what was nice when Ryan approached me about starting The Minimalists, it was a pivot for me. It was a slight pivot from writing fiction to writing nonfiction, right. yeah. and I first I was I wasn't open to it, and I had to think about it in a way to realize like, well, wait a minute, what I what am I ultimately trying to do with what I'm creating? I'm trying to add value in some way. Mm-hmm. This is a way for me to add value, and so we had the opportunity for the podcast, or the films, or tours, or whatever it might be. It was always that question: Does this add value? And mm-hmm. if the answer was no, then I don't heap it onto my plate. Okay. But otherwise realizing that if I say yes to this, I have to say no to these other things. Mm. Otherwise, this is going to suffer.
1: Yeah, and I think people don't know what they want. Mm. And so they chase other people's definitions of their dream. I certainly did. And that will never satisfy. will never satisfy to borrow somebody else's dream long-term. Now, I might see you doing something in life and go, that looks pretty good. Maybe I should try that. Mm. I'm curious about it. Try it on, see if it fits. And and that's most of my story is trying other people's dreams on and seeing how they fit and going, I, that doesn't feel good. Yeah, And you really... You don't have to take it off. It falls off of you, but you can sort of fight to keep it on. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And finding your dream, I think, is a prog- progression of trying on a bunch of other people's ideas for what your life should look like, which we inherit from culture, our parents, all you know, all kinds of influences, media, and that's fine. But eventually, like, you try enough stuff and you go, no, 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 no. Hey. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool, you know, and you kind of find a a, a succession of things that feel good and work and you don't have a million things to do in this life. You've got like one or maybe a few. And I don't think of it as like one thing. I'm like, that's again, being too stubborn. But it's a collection, a portfolio of interests and skills and different things that you kind of put together and you go, this ball of wax is my (laughs) stuff that I do my way and nobody else can compete with it because this group of weird stuff that I do is is what I do. On the minimal
0: episode, you were talking about, and Ryan was echoing this as well, about the stubbornness and being stubborn with the Vision, but not the details, and I think my problem is that I'm stubborn with both. Hmm. Uh, I'll give you an example. So uh, we're just announcing this Sunday symposium. The minimalists are starting our, our own religion without religion. Uh, no, we're we're starting these local um, community groups. Uh, God, all the jokes are gonna. Oh yeah. Have you? Are you ready to accept Ryan Nicodemus as your Lord and Savior?
1: <laughs> well, you got a great name, Nicodemus. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's biblical. Right. It's very we're, biblical. Yeah. King, King Joshua. <laughs> Come on. Uh, uh, anyway, Joshua was a judge, not a king. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, that makes sense.
0: <laughs> um, how
2: dare you? This was this was
1: pre king. I mean, they they were going on. into Israel. Mm, nice, <laughs> here, 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 nice shirt, Ryan. Oh, now,
0: now I got it. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Anyway, um, so we're starting the uh, Sunday Symposium. SundaySymposium dot uh, The first event is August twenty eighth. We're announcing it with our patrons first before we we. Uh, Announce it public wide. There's only 200 seats. Is the problem? The, mm. the the venue only holds 200 people. That we're renting out. It's a free event. If you want to attend, and um, I was going somewhere really profound with this, and then I sorry, I, I, no, it's not your fault. <laughs> you it's were fault. talking
2: about uh, being really
0: strict with the details. Oh, thank you.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: So yesterday, that's <laughs> so why I'm here. <laughs> yesterday, I was um, working on the. Um, ticket page for this, because tickets are free, mm. or you can donate what you want to help us pay for the venue if you'd like, but we, it's accessible to anyone. And so you go on there, it, but in order to do that, it was, you're all, I'm thinking about every detail of the user experience. I probably spent six hours yesterday working on the ticket page, which has nothing to do with the actual event, right. but it's creating the reader, user, viewer, audience experience. Mm. And I'm constantly obsessing over the details, not from my perspective, but if I were to show up at a website or a podcast or whatever it might be, what would I hate to see? Well, Mm -hmm. I hate to see ads so we don't Mm -hmm. do advertisements, right? Mm -hmm. I hate when the details are wrong or I don't know if it's an all ages event. Can I bring my daughter to this thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so like being hyper focused on the details is in a way a superpower but it's simultaneously my kryptonite. Mm, so can exhausting. we have? An, yeah, can we have an intervention here? Can you help me?
1: <laughs> well, I, I would say, you know, kindly um, that it is actually, I believe, impossible to be stubborn on vision and details at the same time. Mm. Meaning, when you are stubborn on details, like like quite practically speaking, if if a vision is sort of this all-encompassing awareness of all that surround me, and you're focused on this thing right here you are missing a lot of your surroundings it's inevitable right if i'm looking at this thing i can't look at i can't look down down the line now of course we all have to focus on details at certain points and it's not that details don't matter it's that different details matter differently to different people mm. you're projecting the things that matter to you onto the world and going these things matter to other people and of course some people will probably share those sensibilities and, and others don't. What I do think uh, you guys do well, and and I can hear that it's it's kind of your attention to detail design. And I've long admired this about your website. I mean. I don't know if you guys did this. I did this because I was always trying other other people's dreams. I was like, oh, I like that. Oh, everything's grayscale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's all black and white. That's smart. That's kind of interesting, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, you're all, like, I was just looking at all kinds of different blogs trying to find what mine should look like and feel mm-hmm. like and changing everything all the time. Um, you see that it comes through. Now, a detail I think is a variable, right? And so, one of the things that you do well in the aesthetic of all of the work that you do, and obviously it fits with the brand, is you remove as many variables as possible so people don't have to make as many decisions, right? So a detail is a decision. I like that. I don't like it. But if you strip away as many details as possible, this was kind of the genius of Steve Jobs' perspicacity towards all of the different Apple products is, take away options, take away details, and then people have fewer things to like or not like. Mm-hmm. It becomes stronger, tighter. So I would say you, you can't not focus on details. You just have have to have such a strong enough vision that the details that you do focus on are few and essential, mm-hmm. right? So stubborn on vision, you don't ignore details, but once you know the vision, they're informing the details. And I would say you probably do have a very clear vision, which is why you spent six hours on that page. Mm. A way to work with that, maybe, if you want to, would be to go, I'm going to let one detail that drives me crazy, I'm going to let it go. Mm because that's mental and emotional clutter, spiritual clutter for you. Mm-hmm. It's something that weighs you down. And I'm going to let it go and see what happens. I like experimenting with like, just not doing things that I normally <laughs> would do. Like, I, me- I remember thinking I have to post today. Um, <laughs> we're getting old now, right? Yeah. right? But we remember when you're oh, yeah. like 31 year old social media, keeping up with the Joneses. I watched this thing on Instagram the other day. And this guy was like, Talking to his audience about why you shouldn't have to feel bad about not posting today, and I was like, "Bro, I, I, I don't think I, I'm like I'm just gonna delete the app now. <laughs> like I'm yeah. just out of here." Yeah. But you have, but you don't know that. You have to experiment with like letting go of one thing that feels essential to you, and see what happens. And you do that for yourself, not as like. Not to be sloppy, because we all have our standards, Mm -hmm. but it might be something to work with. But I think the best way to let go of details is to just have a clear vision, and then you get to decide which details matter to you and and don't. Yeah, We have a
0: perfectionism question coming up in a moment. Before we get into some of those questions, though, this is not a current events podcast, but I saw something that I thought would be relevant for today, because, well... Quite often, we think it's binary thinking. I must quit my job in order to pursue my art. But no, a job can be something you can be really grateful for having because it allows you to pursue your art for a period of time until maybe, eventually, one day, it pays some of your bills. Or maybe it doesn't. I mean, uh, that's uh, also—art pays in multiple ways. One Mm -hmm. of them is is financially. Mm -hmm. But if it pays only financially, one might argue it's not even art anymore. Anyway. I'm bringing this up because Elon Musk has been in the news again. I saw this, uh, this quote, remote work is no longer acceptable at Tesla. Mm. And he was talking about this. And I think this is a huge culture shock for a lot of people. Uh, our friend Ken Coleman over at the Ramsey team was talking about this on his podcast recently, how uh, two thirds of Google employees are unhappy that they have to return to work three days a week. And so they still get partial remote work. And we have a sort of hybrid model here at The Minimalist. Like people, our team needs to be here today when recording a podcast, obviously. But if Jordan's editing it and he wants to come in to edit it, great. If he wants to edit at his house or at a WeWork or whatever, I don't care where you do that, right? But I will say this, that maybe we've gotten a little too spoiled the last couple of years Hmm. um, in the sense that, well, we realize like, oh, maybe I don't have to go into the office, not realizing that maybe there's also a lot of loss and productivity and in, in creating something around people. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you talk about how you know, you're not a committee of one, essentially, that uh, having your own community uh, through which you create is something that is important. So I'd like to get your, your thoughts on this quote. He said, you can uh, work from home after working 40 hours in the office.
1: (laughs) 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 Sure. You know, um, I mean, that's just him. He's he's applying his work ethic to his company and he's saying, I'm going to work harder than everybody and you need to keep up with me. That's Mm. dangerous. It's just silly. It's not, like, it's not going to work. Like, I work at Tesla because it's, you know, there's probably some social capital there. Uh, maybe it pays well and it's kind of fun to make new things, but I don't work at Tesla because I'm trying to save the world or I think I'm gonna save the world like Elon Musk. Elon Musk, to his credit, is very stubborn about his vision and he is very flexible about certain details, including how much time he spends with his children, mm-hmm. uh, how many children he has. Apparently, I think he's at six or seven now. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, has given it has like given up all you know material possessions. You know, when he's in San Francisco, he stays with friends, and it's like, okay, I mean, that's his life. Mm-hmm. He chose that. That's his life, and uh, cool. That's not my life. That's not what I want my life to look like. Mm-hmm. I think it um, is interesting that we associate ours with productivity. It is, yes,
2: yeah. it is
1: not is patently not true. Like. We could spend all day talking about stuff here, and the more we talk, that doesn't mean the better stuff is going to come out. There's actually mm. something really wonderful about having a constraint, mm. and, and art is the epitome of that. You have a frame, right? Back in mm. the day when you had to put you know six to eight songs on an LP, on a long play record, you had like mm. 42 to 45 minutes right? And that was it. Mm -hmm. And that was what you got to do that year or two or three. And then you had to go tour it. And so um, we're not looking for more time. We're looking for more energy. More energy comes from getting alignment with the things that you want to do and that you love to do. And I get it. What's my job? I don't love it. I just have to do it. I get it. And you have more than one option, right? So try to find something that you're pretty good at that you like really well. And I I think inevitably, you know, the next 20 to 50 years in terms of what we think of as a job, what we think of as work and how we spend time doing it, it's just not going to work that way anymore. People are going to live longer, right? Right. Uh, they're not going to need to be around other humans to get their work done. All of that is based on industry, factories, put people as cogs in a machine, and the more hours you put in, the more money the machine makes. Mm. It's not true in creative work. You could argue that the more time I put in, at a certain point, um, I'm doing less good work. Yeah, And so, you know, I mean... uh, good luck elon you know and, and to be fair tesla is a factory they make physical products yes and and they do it in this kind of efficient 21st century way but it's i don't know it's it's not interesting to me i'm not trying to work 8 hours a day mm. i'm trying to do a like three really good things every day. I'm trying to uh, do something to make some money, do something creative that will eventually make me money, and and then just kind of like managing the machine. Mm. And oh, by the way, you will always have a day job. Mm. Mm. Oh,
0: yeah. Expand on that.
1: Come on. You know, like this is your day job, right? And I guarantee you've got some new crazy fun thing that you want to do. And it actually threatens the day job. Mm -hmm. You go, I don't know if we've got a whole community, you know, like, will they let us do that? Mm -hmm. You know, or will I let me do that? Do I have time for it? We are always getting a day job. And then chasing a dream, and there's nothing wrong with that. My day job is I write books, and I and I run a ghost writing and editing agency where we write books and edit books for other people. That's my job. Yeah, mm. you know, or or teaching online courses. That's that's a job. It could be part of your dream, but that's the becoming your own patron thing. So as soon as you become your own patron, guess what's gonna happen? A new dream is gonna come up, Mm -hmm. right? And you're gonna start cheating on your day job, right? Like, (laughs) that's great, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And that's the process of being alive. Life is gonna keep wanting to create new things. Art imitates life, life imitates art. And so this idea that one day you're gonna quit your job and become a full-time artist, I know thousands of people who are full-time artists, full-time creators. They all got a job doing crap that they don't like doing mm-hmm. or, or that or that isn't always fun. And they all have some new crazy thing that they want to do. Welcome to being human. If you can't learn to love that tension right now, where you've got a day job and one hour uh, a day to write a song or like, paint something or or write a story. Don't be an artist because mm-hmm. you are signing up for a lifetime of managing that tension of here's what I got to do and here's what mm-hmm. I want to do. And welcome to being human.
2: Oh, yeah. It makes me think of the, the you know, the cliche of if you find a job that you love, you'll never work another day in your life.
1: Bullshit. Can we yeah. say
2: bullshit? Yes, again, <laughs> it's <yeah. just> like,
1: <laughs> and I fell no, for it. Like, I fell for it for so long. That is stupid. Yeah. It's stupid. Not, that's not the definite. Like, you are going to work because guess what? The definition of a job is something that you work at. Right. And there's nothing wrong with work. No. Work is amazing. Yeah. You know, um, and it's okay to eventually get bored with this thing that you called your passion and your dream. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because you're alive and you're going to do lots of different things. Look mm. at somebody like Picasso who is con- or the Beatles or whoever, constantly going, I'm bored with what I'm known as. Mm. I'm going to completely change the form. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to try lots of different things because my art is never the thing that I create. It's this portfolio of experiences and creations that I'm constantly cultivating. And I get to the end of my life and my magnum opus is not one great thing that mm. I did. It's the body of work. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's why I
0: also get fascinated by people who tend to make the same album over and over. Yeah, like over Nickelback. And over. I can think of it as like the Nickelback effect. And it works. Yeah, and then it's like. <laughs> they're pretty successful, though. <laughs> yeah,
1: of course. And that would right. bore the crap out of me. Right.
0: And, yeah. and, and, but because I'm so obsessive, I feel like for me, I'm able to sustain something. I don't yeah. I don't have the sort of ADHD of like, let's move on to the next idea. Totally. I'm constantly like tweaking it. Like, all mm. right, how do we make the podcast 0.1% better this week? Mm. And, and in doing that, like I'm just constantly obsessing over the details. As I said, it's a superpower, but it's also kryptonite because at some point it's like, okay, this is good enough. Let's ship the thing, yep. right? Mm-hmm. But also, it's never going to be good enough. Yeah.
1: Did, did you ever hear that uh, that Gladwell podcast where he talked about the two kinds of artists? No, I he know. He compared, I think, Matisse to Picasso. Picasso, okay. Picasso was one and done. Mm. Matisse would spend years touching up a painting. Oh, wow. And, and it was in the first season of um, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, and it was about Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah. Mm which was not a popular song when Leonard was playing it in coffee shops and whatever. And that song has like 30 verses that he wrote over the course of 30 years. And there's a Jeff Buckley version. There's a Rufus Wainwright version. This It became popular in part because Jeff Buckley, whatever happened to him, he disappeared, you know, probably died or committed suicide or something um and when he died he had a a cover of it that used some of those verses and then when the movie shrek came out (laughs) uh rufus wainwright had a version that had some different verses and those became the popular versions of that song all that to say gladwell basically said there's two kinds of artists there's the kind that just and and i'm this kind of artist to be fair I, i do it once first take is about the best And the more I kind of chip away at it, the more I kind of break the genius of it. Mm -hmm. Like like my first take is my best. You know, I'll write an article and then I'll review it once. And then if I keep messing with it, it loses the juice. It loses Mm -hmm. the life in it. And that's not just me saying that. That's people, readers and editors that I trust going, no, no, this is like you broke it. And I'm like, okay, okay, all right, fine, fine. Um, But then there's the doubt, like not dabbler, but like the person who's just like chipping away at it slowly and meticulously over a lifetime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's those are both different kinds of genius. And I think it comes down to what's the vision? Is the vision a body of work or is the vision I'm going to do this right and I'm going to do it well? Another example would be like C.S. Lewis wrote tons of books. Uh, his contemporary, Tolkien, wrote like, one kind of, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. he wrote The Hobbit, which is a prequel to The Lord of the Rings, and spent his whole life building this universe. Mm-hmm. Lewis, at the end of his life, and uh, Lewis died early; died in his sixties. He wrote like six or seven books the last year of his life. He was like, "I got to get mm-hmm. these out." Mm-hmm. He was a fast writer. Tolkien would take off years while he was writing The Lord of the Rings. He's like, "I, I got, I got family. I got, I got to go teach classes and stuff." Mm-hmm. He was super late. Uh, in terms of you know hitting deadlines and stuff, and it's like, are you mad that Tolkien took his whole life building, uh, you know th- this this world? No, it mm. it shows. He right. spent years just on the languages. So there's not a right or a wrong way to do it, but maybe know what kind of artist you are. I guess.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good point. I'm I'm a reviser of things, and so things like, in fact, my wife was watching me, um, write something the other day. And she was like, it feels like you're having an epileptic seizure when you're working on a first draft. <laughs> like, they aren't even complete sentences. It's just, it wow. looks like a collage of random words or, or sentence fragments. And I don't realize it because I'm so used to writing this way. It's it's get the words onto the page. Go, 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 go. Yeah. yeah. Get all this onto the page. Most 400-word blog posts are 4,000 words for me. Mm. And then it's just like, my, be- my best, most... Productive writing days are days when I've, you know, this is why I don't do word count, right? Because how many words you write today? Well, negative 2,000 words. Right. I deleted is my yeah. best day. Right. 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 Because I deleted all the words that were superfluous. Mm-hmm. I, uh, when I, in the writing class I teach, I, I call it panning for gold. Yeah. But, but as a writer, you also have to produce the sediment that creates the gold, right? So it's, or, or another metaphor, not to mix metaphors here, but a sculptor, right? Yep. If, if, if you are sculpting out a sculpture, you need a giant piece of rock. But as a writer, you also have to create, so me, I'm like creating this giant boulder Mm -hmm. that is nonsense, it's not art, (laughs) but then I'm spending two thirds
1: of my time sculpting I love that, I I call it clay on the table. Get all the clay on the table, all the raw material, all the stories, the Mm -hmm. ideas, especially as a ghost writer, I don't know how to be you. I don't know how to get into your brain. When, when you're writing your own stuff, you could just you can use this. But when you're writing somebody else's story or using somebody else's ideas, you've got to have all the clay on the table so that you can start shaping it into something beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that's great.
0: We got some surprise questions here today. Alabama. let's start with Jeffrey's question.
3: I don't write as much as I'd like because the words are never perfect. How do I put an end to my perfectionism?
1: Um, define perfect word. I mean, it's y- perfectionism. Uh, somebody told me this, a comedian told me this. He said, perfectionism is not wanting things to be perfect. Perfectionism, perfectionism is having an impossible standard that will always make you miserable doing your work. Mm. Yeah. Um, they're like, I mean, forget about all these, like, there's no, you know, all the memes of like, there's no such thing as Perfection. Perfect words. I mean, what are you talking about? You know, that's crazy. There's words are just words. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm waiting for the perfect weather. Well, good luck, you know, weather changes all the time. What you're doing as a writer is you're channeling the currency of energy and life that's happening through you in any given moment and you're trying to contain it in a story, in a paragraph, in a whatever. And that's why when you go back to the page the next day, you change it. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a different thing happening. And that's cool, that's fine. And what you are doing as a writer is you're actually curating all these moments that you've been encountering over the course of a month or three months or six months or nine months and you've got to find a way to contain that process for you and your process is not my process Mm -hmm. you ever heard that uh uh um maxim that says there are three rules for writing unfortunately nobody knows what they are (laughs) (laughs) right you know it's like no no no. this is the way it works and it's like but this guy does it over here completely differently you know you have to find your own madness and for me, I know that I don't write a better book in 18 months that I write in six, book- six months. But I know that if I try to write it in one month, it's not as good. Like I know mm. kind of what my threshold is for good. I'm not trying to get to perfect. I'm trying to get to something that is better than the last thing I did so that I know that I'm growing. And I always try to take on projects that I don't know I can do, right? Because that's how I'm going gr- to I'm going to grow into it. I'm going to step into it. Um, and there's an old Because we were getting all biblical, there was an old Bible story about the prophet Samuel, who um, got a new coat at the beginning of every year. And if you think about this, what he was as a boy, and he was kind of coming up, studying under you know this this other uh, prophet, and he was learning how to be a, a holy man, basically. And you know, once a year, he got a new coat. Now, how big did that coat have to be? If it fit him the day he tried, as a boy, the day he tried it on, he wouldn't be able to wear it all year. Mm -hmm. And so he had to get a bigger coat. And this is how we ought to choose creative projects. We should always be putting on a coat that's about a year ahead of us. Mm -hmm. So that by the end of the year, it fits. You know what I'm saying? So pick projects, pick endeavors that you don't know that you can do. I mean, for perfectionism, I don't know what planet you're on. Yeah. Find a vision to create something that excites you. And you go, I don't know if I can do this. Awesome. Mm. And then figure out the words that you need to fit into that container to make it happen so that by the end of it, you go, I didn't know that I could do it. Wonderful. Perfect words don't exist. Words exist. And be like Shakespeare. If you can't find the right words, just make them up. Yeah. <laughs> like he just made up words. Yeah. You know, or Trump, Shakespeare or Trump. That same thing. Just <laughs> make stuff up. Oh man. And and but like if you're if you're If you're messing with words, you're stuck in the details. The vision is, how do I make something that excites me? And I Mm. don't know if I could do it. You see a problem in the world that nobody is solving and you go, I want to try to solve that problem. That's what we mean when we say add value. It's like, somebody's not talking about this. Somebody's not doing it or they're not doing it the way that I would do it. Cool. Try it. And hopefully you fail a few times, so that tells you you're trying things that are bigger than you can do. If you spend your whole life doing things that you're comfortable with, that's boring yeah you're, just, you're not growing.
2: You've just given me like a whole new perspective on <clears throat> perfectionism because there's no perfect, but con- you know on the same on the other side of the coin, there's no such thing as imperfect
1: perfect the, the etymology of perfect in, in in kind of middle english um means complete mm, yeah there's a difference okay. between perfection and pristine yeah make your work complete not pristine not flawless what mm-hmm. are you talking about flawless you you walk down the street and you're like these trees are asymmetrical no you're crazy perfection is an idea that you invented to make yourself unhappy with the work that you're going to do mm. so stop it Start doing work that is complete. How do you know it's complete? Because you finished it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, Leonardo da
1: Vinci says, all, uh, what does he say? He says, art is never finished, only abandoned, right? And there's two ways to abandon art. One is you don't complete it. Mm. The other is you go, God, this could be so much better. And I'm so afraid. And I'm going to call it done. I'm going to put it out into the world. And I'm going to learn from this experience of completing this so I can go do the next one. This yeah. is the best thing
0: I could do given the time and resources yeah. I had, right? Yeah. I want to talk about, there's sort of perfectionism here from two perspectives. And I think they both stem from the same source. I think there are people who suffer from perfectionism. Mm. And I think there are people who thrive in spite of their perfectionism. And when I talked about earlier on the private podcast here, while we are, I'm very detail-oriented. And I those details help me thrive as long as I don't get too bogged down into it or sure. I'm trying to perfect everything. Now, I will challenge you on one thing, uh, although I do think perfection is perspectival to a great extent. You talked about the perfect weather. Well, according to whom, right? Mm-hmm. Of course. Like, to me, it's like 72 and sunny and Ryan, it's like cloudy and rainy, right? Exactly. <laughs> and- it's 60-inch like 60, 60 snow base with some like, you know, 12
2: oh. or 13 inches on top of fluff. That's perfect weather for yes. me.
0: <laughs> and, and so it is perspectival in that respect. But then I would say the same thing with like writing. If I read a Don DeLillo novel, I can't get past a few pages because sure. it's like reading a painting. I know. I mean, and and so like you just get stuck. How And then you realize how he does it is he's a, quite the perfectionist as well. He types one paragraph at a time <laughs> on a typewriter. Right. E- even if the sentence is one, par- just one, uh, one, par- one sentence per-, per paragraph, he types it out. And that's one page. Mm. He sets it aside and he's looking, how do the words look relative to the other words in the sentence? And by the end of a novel, he has an entire sort of book of these individual paintings. Every sentence is like a painting. Mm. And that's something that I aspire toward quite often, but also realize that all of his resources go into writing the sentence. Mm. By the way, there's very little plot in what he does. It's just...
1: Pictures. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's pictures that move you through to the to the end of the book, and not a whole lot happens, but it's beautiful the whole time. Now, also to me, aesthetics mean a whole lot more than ideas do, mm. and so the aesthetic of the sentence really resonates with me more than like trying to communicate some grand idea. So that's my idea of perfect. Someone else might open up. The body artist and 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 say what the hell is this? This
1: is course, going nowhere. Of course they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I taught online courses for years, and um, people would always go, "Is this good?" Mm. You know, and I would just basically say to whom? Yeah. You know, like, uh, and what does it mean to be good? Uh, you know, I I love Hemingway. People think he's terrible you know uh, or um, you you might like Harry Potter you know this is brilliant you know like what is it you know you could be a literary writer you could be a genre writer and it's like good to whom what does that mean when I hear when I hear what you're describing I think you have standards yeah. and your standards aren't my standards yeah just like when we walk through an art museum it's like wow I like some of this I don't like other things I kind of understand this I don't understand it and ten years later I walk through and I like other things mm-hmm. yes. And it's like, uh, cool hearing you talk about that. I had a friend who, uh, lived on the property of Cormac McCarthy's editor. And he, one day he asked the guy who, who owned this land. And my friend was the, like the groundskeeper for Cormac McCarthy's <laughs> editor. And he said, um, what is it like? You know, and and he saw he saw some pages on his desk, and he goes, "What's it like working with, you know, editing Cormac McCarthy?" He goes, "If I get through a paragraph, it's a good day." (laughs) (laughs) And it's like that's just that's his craft, you know. And I don't one is not better than the other. Cormac Mm -mm. McCarthy is not trying to be J.K. Rowling. Yeah, she's a billionaire. He's not. Who's right? I I don't know. Like, both of those works, because of their significance to culture, both of the works of these artists, will live on for probably the next 100 years for different reasons. That's right. And that's okay. So that's your vision. Know what you're trying to create. Yes. Understand. I think it was Dan Pink who said that Um, mastery is an asymptote, which is, you know, when's the last time you heard that? Yeah. (laughs) That's seventh grade math or something. An asymptote is like, imagine a graph where you have this line that consistently gets closer and closer to an axis to another line, Mm -hmm. but never touches it. Yeah. It's that old math problem of like, if a frog leapt half the length of you the know, pier and a half and a half, and he'd never get to the end. Well, that's mastery. Mastery is getting closer and closer to an ideal. This is kind of this old Western Greek concept that there are these ideals of beauty and, and the projection of that ideal is art. There's an ideal of uh, you know justice and, and our legal system mm. is an imperfect representation of that. And we're always, as human beings, trying to get closer and closer to the ideal. And that could be a, that can that can kill an artist, yeah. If you're like it's not good enough, mm. or it can enliven you because you're constantly getting better at and better at your craft. Uh, you know, what what is I can't remember like, but so it's a progression of greatness towards a worthy goal. And there's like mm. a Victor Frankel thing in there somewhere, but like happiness actually comes from us trying to do something great and never quite getting exactly there. And every attempt is better, you know? Yeah. And yeah, it's it, it can be maddening or enlivening depending on your perspective. But everybody's got different standards and our job as artists is to know what those standards are. Because mm. you're not competing with everybody, but you are competing with people who share your standards. If mm. you read an author and you go, I would love to do that, good, yeah. right? Like that gives you a reason to get up tomorrow and try harder. Yeah.
2: You said that, you know, the artist needs to focus on what they want to create. Maybe uh, another way to look at it is what do they want to communicate? And instead of asking yeah. themselves, like, is this work perfect? Is this exa- is, is this as good as it can be? The question is, is, are you
1: communicating as clearly as possible what you're trying to communicate? I asked a friend one time, Well, my writing coach, Marion Roach-Smith, wonderful author, Um, wrote a great book called The Memoir Project. If anybody ever wants to write memoir, I would highly recommend that very short book. She's a brilliant writer. Um, And she, um, I said, I was working on this book actually. And it was, every book takes me, I just mentioned, you know, like, I can't do it in one month, but I can do it in six months. And I've written five books under my own name and about a, a dozen plus, you know, including ghostwritten books. And um, every book takes me twice as long as the previous book because my standards keep going up. Mm. You know, I, I can't, I don't want to write that book again. I want to write something better. And I asked her when I was about, I don't know, in the third or fourth <laughs> developmental edit of this book go, and I said, um, how do I know when I'm done? Mm. You know, because I could add this story or change this or do that. She said, you, you're done when, when you've made your argument, mm. like, you, like think of it as like a like you're in court as a lawyer. Going back to lawyer, this this episode is brought to you by um, Legal Zoom. <laughs> 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 and um, when you rest, when you make your case, yeah. and the reader is the jury and the judge, and they get to sometimes the executioner, and they get to decide. <laughs> if you convinced them that's the hard part of making anything is of course you go into it with an idea an argument a message something that you want to change and then you try to put it into this thing and and people screw it up man like Mm -hmm. they get other things out of it Mm -hmm. you know and they they read words in there that you never wrote (laughs) yeah and your job is to make your case make your argument and then rest and go have fun and, and yeah. you know, as Liz Gilbert says, once you release it, it no longer belongs to you. It belongs yeah. to this cosmic craziness where people pick up all kinds of things that you never meant to say. Yeah, And that's Amen. that's that's beautiful. It can be really beautiful. I yeah. think perfectionism often stems from
0: fear of, of some course. sort. And so fear of being thought of in a way, fear of being rejected, mm-hmm. fear yeah. of failure. But we're defining all of these things based on some, you know, predetermined bias that we picked up along the way right and so mm-hmm. if I don't do the thing if I don't write then I can't fail at being a writer right I can mm-hmm. be a, the perfect writer in my head and I think yeah. that's the the essence of Jeffrey's question here like yeah you're a perfect writer until you start writing
1: yeah, And then you have to change your definition of perfection. You have to move it from pristine to complete. Mm-hmm. Did I do the best that I knew how to do with the time and resources that I had today? Mm-hmm. Then you rest. You go, you know, your honor, the defense rests. And tomorrow is a different day mm-hmm. with different circumstances. Yeah.
0: Alan Watts says the key to fear is to not be afraid of it. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's really the way that you overcome perfectionism.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Suzanne has a question for us.
3: How do you make time to be creative while you're working a regular corporate job?
2: Can't do it. It's impossible.
1: <laughs> burn the bridges. Burn the boats. Quit, quit, quit. <laughs>
0: I'll tell you what I did. I um, I used to wake up at 5.45 every morning to go to work. And I started setting my alarm for 4.44 every morning. This is before <laughs> Jay-Z's 4.44 album. He got uh, that from you. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. Really? <laughs> yeah. I you said, you got it. Yeah, hey, he it got me that. Off. Rip yeah, me totally. Right? Ripped me off. <laughs> I'm taking this to court. <laughs> and I would get the reason I did that is I needed one extra hour. It took me a minute to get from bed to the desk. I had nothing else, and I would write from four forty-five to five forty-five each morning. Mm. I didn't worry about word count, page count, whatever. I was just sit in the chair. I got those four words from Donald Ray Pollock, and he talked about sitting in the chair and like how those four words changed his life. Mm. And he didn't become a published author until he was in his 50s. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is it was about removing all of those other sort of barriers and just doing it for an hour a day. It wasn't this grandiose thing. It wasn't, oh, but yeah, I don't have the time. I don't have eight hours a day to go to my cabin in the woods and mm-hmm. write. No, there was just a coffee table or a dining table and a laptop and words and an hour a day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Another approach would be to find a way to use your day job to practice uh, your craft. And, and I tell a story in the book actually about a guy who um, uh, uh, worked in Wall Street banking, very demanding, busy job. And he wanted to be a writer. And so he had to, he, he wrote maybe half a dozen memos a day. And he started writing memos as like haikus and just having fun with them. Mm. And two things happen. And I find this to happen more often than not. It happened for me as well. Two things happen when you start, uh, first of all, when you reject the, Illusion that your job is keeping you from your dream—that is yeah. a lie. You are finding yet another reason to not do the thing that you love doing because you're afraid, yeah. and you will always find a reason to not do it. The kids, the wife, the husband, the whatever, the mm-hmm. dog, the job, the whatever—you're always going to find a reason not to do what you want to do because it's scary. Yeah, it's scary. And you get up at four forty-four, you walk to the desk, and you go, "What now?" Mm-hmm. You know. And and there were days where I go. I did everything but write, you know, and then I had to kind of catch up. So he started using his day job to play, you know, to have fun, to to start writing. And it was just for fun. Two things happened. One, everybody read his memos because they were different from what everybody else was doing. And the second thing was he started getting some muscle memory. He started getting some reps in. I did the same thing. I was working at a nonprofit organization as a uh, marketing director, and I um I, I wanted to be a writer. And so I started teaching blogging to our, our team because we're like, hey, we can use this tool to um, raise more money and get more volunteers. We were, you know, we were this um, relief organization. And, and then I started teaching our marketing team uh, how to write better. Which eventually like became a business for me. I was using the context that I had, like Rocky, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> you know what a hey, Rocky movie, he's got to go back to, you know, like the old gym in mm. Philly, and, and he's gotta go back to his roots. You use what you have, you know, you punch the meat rack or whatever, you use what you have, you let go of all excuses, you go, This is what I've got. I got 10 minutes, I got memos, I got whatever I have, I've got some space. Where with a different mindset, I can. This can be my practice arena. Mm. This can be my studio. When you tell yourself, "I need this," or "I need a writer's desk," Stephen King tells this great story in his memoir on writing, where he said, "For years, I dreamed of having this big, beautiful desk, and then I bought it, and and I and I put it in there, and and he said, I wrote books that I don't remember writing because I was drunk, high, addicted, <laughs> right? And he he said, I got rid of the desk." I turned my office into a playroom and I just wrote, my kids would come in and watch movies. He has this beautiful quote in this book where he says, um, you know, uh, life is not a support system for art. It's the other way around. Mm. Your art is not this thing out there that you're going to go do someday. It's happening right now in your life and you're missing it. Mm. Take a minute today and make something. Right, pull out the receipt and write a poem on it. Right, turn a, a a memo into a haiku. Do something now. Call your own bluff. You're lying. You're lying when you say, "When I don't have this bullshit job, I'll get to be an artist." It's mm. not true.
0: Yeah, and that makes me feel that's awesome so much better because I I have a desk at home, and I tend to write most things at my kitchen table because that's where I started yeah, writing. Me too.
1: Mm. Breakfast table.
0: Yeah, mm. right art sta- happens
1: anywhere, not in a.
0: Cabin. Oh, when well, Ryan and I moved to a cabin in the middle of nowhere <laughs> yeah. to write our second book, right? And we had we owned next to nothing, right? I brought a lamp with me. I don't know why I brought a lamp with me. I didn't really need that lamp. <laughs> you needed something sentimental, from <laughs> I suppose. I, it's long gone. But uh, what I did notice is when we went and found the desk that I could write at. And in my room, and we it was a three dollar desk, and Ryan had to like reassemble it because it was probably yeah. 50 years old, oh, yeah, right? We found it at like this old used, you know, uh, hardware store, <laughs> and uh, we just assembled the desk. And I got more writing done at a three dollar desk than if it was a three thousand dollar desk, mm. right? It just I needed a location that was the location for me. And that was a trigger for me as well. It was a tiny desk, so every morning I just get up, walk over there and get started by the time the sun was hitting my eyes i knew it was time to take a break Mm. and uh so that was another trigger to sort of stop midday
1: yeah you guys know this i mean stuff is not the enemy and it's also not the solution it's just stuff one of the cool things about minimalism i think is that um well i I think there's a danger if i if i may say this in that like some people think if they get rid of all their stuff they'll be happy oh yeah yes what I think happens is you get rid of all your stuff and you go, oh shit, now, now I still got all this stuff happening yeah, inside right. of me. Now what? And yeah. it's like that Pascal quote where he says, you know, most problems stem from a man's inability to sit in a room by himself and do nothing. You know, be mm. in complete silence. Mm-hmm. And so you get rid of all this stuff and then you go, oh boy, now I got to do this thing. And art is the same way in that you you get rid of all the time commitments. You have all this time and you got a cabin and a beautiful thing and you go, But I haven't been practicing. It's like you could get a big, huge gym, but you still have to like move the weight, you know? And you're not going to be able to bench 500 pounds. Mm. You've never lifted a weight. So go start working out right now. If you want to get the gym, the big desk, whatever, that's fine. It's going to augment your practice that you've all, you've been spending hopefully years Mm. in the margins. Yeah. Practicing with an hour a day, because if you don't know how to use an hour a day, you know this. You guys know this. If you don't know how to productively use an hour of writing time per day, what are you going to do with eight? Right. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. You're going to find uh, you're going to find eight hours of distractions and end the day going crap. Yeah. You know, I need something else. It's not true. David mm.
0: Foster Wallace said he spent he spent most of his time while writing Infinite Jest. He said I spent about an hour or three hours a day writing, and the rest of the time. Worrying about not writing, yeah, mm. yeah, and <laughs> I think that happens to any creative person. Is we often worry about like the creative output. Am I supposed to be doing more? Well, no. I mean, the the heart of the question here is
1: do something. Yeah, yeah, and and writing. I think a lot of art is this way. It is a it is sort of a performance based craft, if I can say that, which um, means you're dealing with states of flow. States of flow are not sustainable by definition. Mm -hmm. And so most like really prolific, really great writers, two to three hours a day is good you know, six, eight, 10 hours. That's kind of crazy. And it's like, think about um, extreme sports. Think about, you know, basketball, football, whatever. Um, those aren't extreme sports, but it's not, a, you know, like as somebody who's not very athletic, I'm like, that sounds extreme. You know, wow. You like move around on a court and sweat. I'm just like trying to get a comfortable chair.
0: Um, <laughs> All right, so tackle ice basketball. Ready, go. <laughs> you know what I'm
1: saying? But like, they're, they're practicing, they're eating, they're mm. resting. You know, if they're really intense, they're doing several hours of practice per day. And that's intense. Yeah. Um, you know, so a lot of your job as an artist is to create buffer zones in your life to get into the zone, to get into a flow state mm. and sustain that for a reasonable amount of time and then recover from it. You mm. don't want to write or create eight hours a day. You want to give yourself time and space and energy to be able to do two to three hours of really good stuff. And it will probably take you years to work up to be able to do that. It did mm. for me. Mm. I started with 30 minutes a day, 500 words. And that was hard. And blogging was a great, you know, practice arena for that. Yeah. And uh, when I tried to write a book, I'm like, I don't know how to write a book. I know how to write for 30 minutes a day. Mm. So I just started with that. And then it sort of expanded from there.
2: Yeah. I The biggest thing I'm taking away from this, uh, and this is you know, message to Suzanne, like wake up every day and you gotta ask yourself, how can I make today an art project?
1: Yeah. Like find one th- yeah. one thing to sort of stick into the schedule that by the end of the day you go, I feel pretty good that I did that because yeah. if I because I wouldn't have done that without thinking about it.
2: Yeah. She could even like on her way to work set a voice recorder up and just speak into it and, yeah. and and let that be her uh her little art project for the day. But yeah, there's a million ways to go about it and there's no right or wrong way to go about it. It's what's right for you.
1: And thinking about creating is creative. Most of mm. what we do is think. An editor told me once thinking about writing is writing. Because writing is thoughts on page. Now, if I'm just thinking about writing, I'm not putting the thoughts on page, you know, like that's that's not all of it. But I've certainly sat down without thinking and I go, I don't know what to do. And sometimes stuff comes. But I, I, thinking is as important to me as as the writing and I have to do both of them. And so don't denigrate not making the thing. Right? Like, making the thing is half of the equation. It's not 100% of the equation. The other half is thinking about it, imagining it, dreaming it, discovering it, however you want to think of it. Like, you got to do both. And so driving to work, yeah, doing a voice memo or writing something down on the back of a napkin, Mm -hmm.
3: that's part of it too.
1: Yeah.
0: I want to talk to you about creative people versus uncreative people. So we have a question here from Dana.
3: Is it possible for me to be creative if I'm not a creative person?
0: This is... Interesting, because I do believe there is such a thing as talent. There's someone who, you know, Kevin Durant has certain talents that I will never have. Mm-hmm. He's also seven feet tall, right? And so I wouldn't say that I'm untalented in basketball. I would say that I don't I, I don't have the same talent as him, right? But also he has a whole set of skills that he's developed over several decades. Mm-hmm. And so, Saying you're an uncreative person or you're not a creative person is like saying, I don't have height. Well, no, everyone has height. (laughs) Some people are taller than other people. And so you have a height, right? Like I'm 6'2". I have a height. But there are people who are appreciably taller than me. I think the same is true with creativity. I'm about 6'2 in creativity as well. There are some people who tower over me in their sort of inborn creativity. But it's not an excuse for me to not create. We are all creative beings
1: to some extent. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I... I it's an interesting thing, right? Because it is only a thing that creative people say, what we call creative people. Only creative people say everybody's creative, you know? <laughs> Isn't that kind of interesting? Yeah. Um, and I, I actually, I, I think I reject the notion of talent. And and what I mean by that is I think w- we develop skills as sort of w- adaptive behaviors to life. So if you're born super tall you know, and everyone goes, you should play basketball or whatever. You're like, I guess I'll, like you, you put in a lot of mm. hours because of a genetic predisposition. You know, there, there's, you know, there's certainly the biology. And so I think um, we don't get to completely decide what kind of art we want to make. Mm. I, I like what Parker Palmer, who's a Quaker, says about this Quaker and author and activist. He says, Before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. Mm. Before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, set goals, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. There's nothing wrong with that. Looking at who you are, the experiences that you had, how these things made you what you are, and then working with those, not like consigning yourself to I'll never do X, Y, or Z. If you want to do something, do it. But look at the stuff that you're working with. Mm. So when I look at my life, I go, Well, I didn't play sports because I'm five seven, five eight. And um, and cause my mom told me, Don't play sports, be do creative things, <laughs> you know, like it was very anti-athletic. Mm. So what did I do? I found myself um Painting and drawing and writing songs because girls wouldn't go out with me and that's a good way to you know <laughs> vent that and eventually get girls to go out with you. <laughs> um, I found expressions of things that were happening mm. in my life, and um, I became creative not because I wanted to be creative, but because that was my response to what was happening in my life. Yeah. Now creativity means making something. So. Yeah. You learn that we learn this as parents, I think. Um, I remember when my son was maybe six, he was at our breakfast table just drawing, right? And I go, Hey, buddy, you're really creative. That's amazing. He goes, What? I go, You're really creative. He goes, What does that mean? I go, Means you make stuff? (laughs) And I was like, Oh shit. I don't know. From the you know, mouth of babes. <laughs> you know, and and that, that there's that old Picasso quote, you know, um, every child is an artist and you kind of have to learn how to not be creative. You don't have to convince a child, sing a song, you know, draw something, build something, make something. It mm. is innate. Yeah, um, Human beings are making things all the time. Yes. We are creating things. Now, we have relegated a certain set of activities that we call creative, which means artistic, you know, but- Elon Musk is creative in the sense that he is designing solutions to problems that people thought were impossible to solve. That's creative. So I would say um, don't try to fit into some, you know, artsy-fartsy box, right? Because mm-hmm. if that's not your experience, that's going to feel frustrating. And don't try to be good at things that you don't feel drawn to. I, I had a great conversation years ago Um with an author whose name escapes me, he wrote a book called The Talent Code. Daniel Coyle, mm. great book about kind of debunking, you know, skill versus natural-born talent. He said this to me. I thought it was really interesting. He said, uh, we, I said, how do you get great at something? He goes, it's, you know, 10,000 hours of practice. He goes, but there's got to be some sort of intrinsic motivation. There's got to be what he called a spark. Mm-hmm. And I said, where does that come from? He goes, nobody knows. (laughs) There's this kind of like spiritual, mystical, mysterious element to it, which is kids and human beings, adults, you know, alike are sort of drawn to some things over others. And no amount of pushing can make somebody love something that they don't love. And so my encouragement to somebody who's uncreative is to maybe break up with that term a little bit because creativity in my mind is just making stuff that um, changes something in some way. It's transformative. It solves a problem. Engineering is incredibly creative. Mm -hmm. You know, art is creative. There's lots of different ways to think of creativity. Mm -hmm. And then look at your life. What are the things that happen to you that are just weird? (laughs) You know, weird stuff that happened to me. Um, I won the sixth grade spelling bee. And I beat an eighth grader and I made him cry. And that was the only damn time I made an eighth grader cry. <laughs> <laughs> you bet your ass I felt good about that. <laughs> and, and I found something that I could be good at that, may, that put other people down. As a 12-year-old pudgy kid who had long hair and was often mistaken for a girl because I had bosoms. That- <laughs> I love
2: that, that
1: was a good thing for me to put. I was like, words, I can do things with words. I can be somebody. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was adaptive. And then I kind of like worked through some trauma and, you know, worked around the ego thing a little mm. bit. But it was, it, it was a way for me to, you know, make an expression of myself in the world. So you've got weird stuff mm-hmm. that other people don't have. Harness that, own the weird stuff, mm-hmm. and then apply it to something that you want to do And then find somebody who's done it, right? Mm -hmm. And go, oh, you're an author and you write for an hour a day. I never thought of that. I guess I'll try that. Cause you've got to kind of find your way, but take all your weird crap with you. Cause that's what's going to make you, you. And it's going to make it unique. And then you still got to do all the work. You know, Mm -hmm. you got to put all your hours in it, but you're taking that thing with you that becomes your style. And there's this great quote from Bono talking about how they found that U2 sound. And he said, you know, we were just trying to do what all the other 80s bands were doing, you know, all these hair bands and stuff. And we weren't that good. (laughs) I mean, The Edge is not that great of a guitarist. He's a unique guitarist, Mm -hmm. but he's not Steve Vai. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said, and we weren't good enough to do what everybody else was doing. And this sound that you call the U2 sound that everybody's been copying ever since is just what came out. Mm. And I think there's a surrender that happens in the life of an artist where you spend a good chunk of your life trying to be your heroes. And you have to let that go. And you go, this is what came out. And mm-hmm. eventually at some point, I'm gonna own it. Hemingway didn't invent the terse writing style. He was copying Ezra Pound and a number of other people, yeah. but he learned that terseness from Pound mm. in exchange for boxing lessons, by the way. Oh yeah.
0: Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and eventually you own what comes out. You go, this is this is what this is what came out. You know, and mm-hmm. every musician knows this. You're like, nobody wants to hear. The cover song. Like, I mean, it's fun at a bar, you know, but like, you you don't want to make a a lifetime of creative artistry playing other people's music. You Mm. do that to figure out what that feels like. Um, I think it was, um, well, Fitzgerald used to um, uh, copy, you know, the works of his, his favorite authors and so did Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson would write the Bible. He would type it on a typewriter. And he said, I mean, it's the best-selling book of all time. I'm going to try to beat it, you know, very 100 thing to do. And he said he wanted to write to see what it felt like, what those words felt like to his fingertips. Mm. So you copy other people as a way of kind of take, like learning the craft, yeah. but then own all your weird shit that makes, that, that you can't outrun. I can't outrun all this weird stuff, mm-hmm. but I can own it or I can try to push it off.
2: Yeah, own all your weird stuff. And, and this makes me think about in high school, I worked at a Wendy's. This podcast is brought to you by Wendy's. <laughs> try a bacon double cheeseburger today. Trying uh, to
0: clog your arteries
2: yeah. today. <laughs> oh, man. Um. So uh, me and Josh and our friend Pacho and his brother, Jerome, we had all these weird voices. We always did. Like just kind of joking around with each other. So what I did to make my job fun at Wendy's I would take these weird voices and I would use them through the drive through system.
1: That's oh, amazing. <laughs>
2: and like people would come into the drive through and they'd be like, were you the guy I was just talking to? I'm like, no, no, he's in the back. <laughs> <laughs> what,
0: what you're talking
1: about? <laughs> That's creative. Yeah. Anytime you do something different... Unexpected. It's creative. It's so all your weird stuff is creative.
0: Yeah. And what you're really talking about here, both of you, is expanding what you mean by creative. Yeah. Often people think they're not creative because they can't write poetry. Right. Mm-hmm. I can't write poetry. Uh, but then the other day, uh, Professor Sean over here was telling me that no, I, a lot of your blog posts are very poetic. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I never thought of it that way. I, I've, apparently, I've been writing poetry for years. I didn't realize it. Right. But if I narrowed it down and I said, well, I, I'm not creative because I can't do this one thing, it's just like when you were a kid and your mom said, hey, you're not athletic, that's one of the most creative things you can do is play a sport, right? Of course. If I look at Michael Jordan, I mean, how cr- he's a creative genius, mm-hmm. right? You look at Kevin Durant, I can't do what he does, and it's not all about height. John Stockton, he's an inch shorter than me. Muggsy Bogues. There you go. He's <laughs> five, too, right? <laughs> He had to be creative. That's the last time I watched NBA, <laughs> nineteen
1: ninety something. Yeah, <laughs> classic. And the point
0: is, he even he was he was especially creative. He was a five foot mm. two guy playing in the NBA. That requires a level of creativity, mm. and had so to adapt. Yes, and so that's what creating
1: really is. It's adapting to some situation, circumstance, environment, doing yeah. something a little bit different than how it's done before. Mm. Understanding how it's done before. Will Durant speaking of Durant who's a historian says nothing is new except arrangement. And so my challenge is to anybody who would think of what they do as creative or uncreative creativity is the act of rearranging familiar stuff in an unfamiliar way and people go I never thought of it like that. Mm-hmm. You know the Beatles were creative in the sense that they were they were putting together songs in ways that had never been done before. Oh yeah. And now we look back on it and go, like like uh, You know, they went from mono to stereo. And we go, well, like, I mean, that's nothing now. But at the time, it was revolutionary that there was a tambourine coming out of this speaker and a voice coming out of that one.
2: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And, like, you listen to the White Album, and half of it is, like, these classic songs yes. that are just gorgeous. And then the other half, you're like, what the hell were they doing? Oh, yeah. Drugs. Right, right. Yeah. Lots of drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny because their 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 producer was like, Can we just like cut out half of these songs and just make a hit album? They're like, no, we want the weird stuff
1: in there. And that was the genius of the Beatles yes. I think. Yeah. You know, is, is you got Love Me Do and then uh, Revolution number nine. Number nine. Number, number nine. Number nine. nine. <laughs> <laughs> weird. Yes. And and you gotta get weird to get good. Yeah. And you've got to learn how to manage the weirdness because mm-hmm. the weirdness is what's interesting. It's the stuff that comes out that you go, hey, that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Let's,
3: let's hold on to that.
1: Yeah. Alabama, let's do one more question here from Asha.
3: How do full-time creatives handle health insurance, retirement, financial planning, and other things traditionally covered through a nine-to-five job?
1: This, this is ep- how they get you. This episode is brought to you by Cash yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> what are all those, like the PEOS? You know, all those yeah. Uh, things. Yeah. Anyway, there's anyway. tools.
2: There's tools for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what do you do? What do you do with health insurance? What do you do with 401ks? What do you do with? Um, what else do they bring up? Uh, yeah, a uh, uh, financial planning.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, that's a whole other scope, as you guys know. You get creative. I, I think that's probably the, the short answer. Yeah. And, and you guys probably do something different from what I do. Um, you know, uh, one, you you pay more money for a lot of those things sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. That becomes part of your budget. It does, yeah. yeah. Uh, health insurance is expensive for self-employed people. Uh, two, um, you can become an employee of your own company, of your own organization. And, mm-hmm. and there can be both tax advantages and... You know insurance advantages where um, you can use something like a, a PEO, where mm-hmm. you are a W two employee of your own organization, and then you get a health care plan through something like that. So, I mean, uh, that's kind of what I do, and mm-hmm. and I just I budget it, you yeah. know, and I make more money as a full time creator than I did working at a job where I got health insurance, and so you know, it's, it's worth it. Yeah. And that goes back to, um, you're not going to get, you're not going to do this, um, you know, from zero to one, hopefully going to do this in a progression. So you may have a part-time job, or you may be mm-hmm. an employee of an organization for the, the sake of, you know, the insurance or whatever, or you may have a, a spouse or a partner who has that. And that's how you, you do that. But I, I would say the short answer is you figure it out and you apply the same creativity. This is what kind of drives me nuts about artists is they go, well, how am I going to do this? It's like, you just wrote a fantasy novel, right? You just invented a world. Mm. And now you can't take the same level of creativity (laughs) and figure out like what to do if your kid gets sick. Like, there's lots of options, and you've got to be as creative with the life that you're building around your art as you were with making the art itself. Yeah.
2: I mean, these things certainly aren't easy to replace. No. So nothing about this is easy. No. But, uh, But there are ways to go about it, creative ways to go about it. And yeah, I mean, it might be a budgeting thing. I know a lot of starving artists who, I mean, they're on Medicaid. They can't, they can't, and that's, that's. I'm not shaming anyone. That's what they can afford. That's what they're on. That's okay. But there are solutions besides selling your soul every single day, if that's what you feel like you're doing.
0: When I walked away from the corporate world, I took a 90% pay cut. I made mm-hmm. uh, $23,000 in 2011, uh-huh. and I was more financially secure that year. Mm-hmm. And retroactively, Ryan has sort of a a thought experiment that he walks some people through, especially when he does mentoring. With, with folks. And this one really helped me out, helped me understand that what are you getting from your current job? Mm. Let's say it's health insurance and it's vision insurance and it's 401k. Add it all up, put it all on paper. What does that cost? Yeah. Say $40,000 a year. I mean, that's an insane number. It's an insane number, <laughs> but let's
2: say it's something crazy like that. Yeah.
0: Let, let's say it's 40,000. Yeah. Okay. Am I willing to be miserable if I'm miserable where I'm at? Mm-hmm. In order to make forty thousand dollars? And the answer is almost always no. Now that doesn't mean, okay, well then I run into my boss's office today, I yell, screw you, I quit this horrible job. No, it's about okay, I've realized that this situation I'm in right now Mm -hmm. is creating this suffering in my life. Yes. It's creating this discontent. And it's worth it for me to figure out how can I make this money differently? Mm -hmm. How can I make that whether it's $5,000 or $40,000 a year to pay for health insurance and everything else that you need to pay for mm-hmm. that you're getting right now from your corporation. If you do that as an experiment, then you'll realize like, oh, well, that's all I need to, to make. It's, it's, it's not as daunting as I, I thought it was. Yeah. If I add it all up, it's not as daunting as staying here in this miserable situation yeah. might be. And
2: well, the other side of that thought experiment is this. Uh, if you had the $40,000 in your bank, and you could just spend that forty thousand dollars to cut out all this misery. Would you spend that forty grand? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's that's the other side of that. Where so, sometimes the answer is yes. Like I've I've went through that thought experiment with mentees who are thinking about taking a job promotion. They're like, oh, it's going to take this much yeah. more work. And I'm like, would you? How much are you getting a year? Oh, thirty thousand dollars extra. Would you pay thirty thousand dollars a year to not have all that extra work? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not a right or wrong answer.
1: Right. Or another way to think about it is like, um, you know. Uh, Hey Ryan, how you doing? I'm gonna pay you forty thousand dollars to be miserable. Mm. Do you take mm-hmm. the forty thousand dollars? Do you take it? Mm. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. And again, there's not yes. a right or
2: well, there's not a right, or right wrong right. to that. But my answer would be no, personally. Right. Yeah. And so
1: you push it back over here, and I go, "Oh, you just came up. You just paid me forty thousand dollars to not be miserable." Mm-hmm. And the question I think becomes, "How do I find forty grand?" Yes, and, 100%. and, and this is a mindset shift I think for artists. If you've been an employee, you're going, um, I need somebody to pay me to do the things that I need to do. Mm. And when you become an artist, you go, I need somebody to pay me to do the things I want to do. And that ain't it. That's not how it works. You go, you realize, I think, you can realize this. I just bought a house and I didn't have the money to buy the house for the down payment. And I was like, and being a self-employed person... They wanted a lot more security in place because I don't, I'm not a W-2 employee. Yeah. I have W-2 employees. I, I employ other people. I am a source of security for other people, mm-hmm. but I'm not one unto myself. Um, and so I had to come up with uh, about 150% of what you would normally need for a down payment. And I said, I don't know. But I, but that here's a problem for me to solve. I'm going to get creative. Mm-hmm. And I came up with the money. I sold harder. I, I found new clients. Like it was a whole experience and, and, and a fun kind of little experiment. And so one of the sort of last dominoes to fall for an artist fully becoming what I call a thriving artist is realizing that money is something that you make. Mm-hmm. It is something that you create. You don't go around the world as a beggar saying, can you pay me? Mm -hmm. For my work, you go, I'm going to create value in Mm -hmm. the same way that big corporations and financial institutions do. I'm going to make something that's going to attract value, Mm -hmm. and that's going to come to me through the form of money.
2: Yeah. If you are putting something of value into the world, people will find a way to
1: compensate you for it a hundred percent of the time it's like a law of the universe it actually has to happen that way yeah. it's, it's a law of reciprocity if I put value out into the world it's going to come back to me mm-hmm. and it often comes back in some very surprising ways mm-hmm. and and that doesn't have to be this like woo-woo esoteric thing it can be very practical I'm looking for problems that other people aren't solving mm-hmm. I solve those problems and people go hey that's pretty like here you go you know yeah. you mowed my lawn thank <laughs> you, yeah. you know? oh and you mowed my lawn better than the last idiot who did it so I'm going to pay you five dollars more than him you just incre- you created value out of nothing Yeah. and that's what I think is fun and scary for a lot of artists because they have this war with money mm-hmm. and I go back to Michelangelo who got a million dollars to paint the Sistine Chapel and complained about it like a good artist he goes <laughs> and he wrote in, in his in, in a letter he said I am the poor starving servant of other people's dreams he <laughs> <Yeah>. got <laughs> you know Um, he he was playing a couple of different games he should have ran for office Mm. Um, (laughs) but he did something that no artist had ever done before in that he became an affluent artist and and he did it very strategically and years later he wrote to his nephew he's an avid letter writer his whole life he said I never kept a shop like most artists did and that was a jab because most artists were merchants they'd make stuff and sell it for you know a, a cheap you know, like they were at a market, right? You yeah. go, you walk through Florence now, you walk through the market and they, everybody's selling their wares. Michelangelo never did that. He goes, All right, I'm going to call up the Pope, the king. Like, <laughs> yeah. and there were strategic reasons that he could do that. Yeah. He knew these people, mm-hmm. but he very strategically kind of blazed a path towards his vision. And you could do the same thing. There's a million weird ways to thrive as an artist. You've just got to find your path to do it. And the least of your problem. Uh, of your problems are going to be finding an extra forty grand, and I know that sounds impossible to some people. Right, but I'm telling you, it's not that hard of a problem to solve. And if it's any consolation, stupider people than you have done this, <laughs> and I and I always got to fall back on that because I'm like. This guy, I'm not, I'm. he's kind of dumb and he's doing way better stuff than I am. I can figure um, this out.
2: Yeah, if I can do it, I promise you patrons, <laughs> you can also do it. Yeah. You know, what I love about your book is uh, uh you got Michelangelo's story kind of weaved throughout the whole thing. And I don't know if this is good or bad, but you made me feel like I could be a Michelangelo. And uh, that's what I love about your book, man, mm. is, is you, you help some common schmuck like me be like, huh. It, actually, this is a, there's a recipe here that I could tweeze
1: some ingredients out of. What's interesting about him is, um, yeah, I, I did a super deep dive into his life, but he had a last name, Buonarrati. And, um, you know, typically you didn't, not everybody had a last name. It was a sign of privilege, of nobility. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, he doesn't have a last name. Da Vinci, I mean, he's from Vinci. It's where mm-hmm. he's from. Leonardo da Vinci was a, um, he was a bastard. He was an illegitimate child. And as a result, you know, couldn't hold land. There were all these things that he couldn't do. Michelangelo had a last name and his whole life growing up, his father told him that they were of noble birth, noble blood. And, and this was part of what drove Michelangelo was the idea that he couldn't just be an artist. He had to be rich like Mm -hmm. that. Like he had to make enough money. And he was, I think the second eldest son and his older brother was a priest You know, and so he goes off and joins the priesthood. And so he's not going to make any money that kind of trickles down to the rest of the family. Mm. So it was incumbent upon Michelangelo to make a lot of money as an artist. So very early on, he kind of strategically had to build a career very different from what other artists were doing at the time. Mm. Now, here's what's interesting is no historian has been able to find any connection between the Buonarati name and any noble family. Mm. They don't know where the surname came from, but everybody basically agrees that he wasn't noble. This was is a story that he, that he told himself. It was a story that he told mm. himself, and because he believed it, it came true. And the message of Real Artists Don't Starve is the... Myth of the starving artist is a story. Myths are stories that we tell ourselves to help us make sense of reality. And if you tell yourself a story enough times, even if it's not true, mm-hmm. it becomes true.
0: Yeah. Do you know Nicodemus's middle name is Noble? Literally. <laughs> so,
1: you are of noble birth. Yeah, I am. <laughs> yes. Literally. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Ryan Noble Nicodemus. That's oh, an amazing name. Uh, yeah. Thanks, man. It's a power name. God-given. He's he's the guy with three names, but you need the three names. I know, right? <laughs> more like Eric
0: Given, but still. Uh,
2: yeah. 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 More like Eric Given. I, uh, yeah. I, the last name though, that I really was thinking about. So my wife's sitting over there. Uh, we'll have a kid one day, hopefully. And, um, I would love to just name the kid Nicodemus and leave it at that. <laughs> like no middle That's name, cool. no last name, just like Nicodemus. Or the artist formerly known as Nicodemus.
1: Well, and like, <laughs> they'd have to be some sort of, you know, pop star sensation something. Would have to be. Yes. Yeah.
2: Written. It's But that's what matters. Your name matters most. So if you have an interesting name, I'm kidding, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> la- the last thing about Michelangelo, to your point, yep. not, not to spend too much time on it, is um, there were many artists who followed Michelangelo who who did comparable things. Who be, mm. he, So he wasn't just an outlier. Obviously, he was an outlier. Well, but he he made it possible for other artists to become aristocrats. Mm. And I always have to like make sure I don't say aristocrat because, you know, Disney. <laughs> uh, I'm like, what is the right word, aristocrat? Uh, he made it possible for other people to do that. And that's what we're actually doing with our creative careers is we aren't just doing this for ourselves. It can feel very selfish and egotistical sometimes and narcissistic, you know, building a platform, me, me, me. Um, but you are actually blazing a trail for other creative people who don't know that they can do what you're doing. And I appreciate, you know, that you guys do this. I try to do it. like This is possible. And I'm showing you by how I'm doing it. And I'm mm. showing you how I'm doing it because I'm just looking at what other people have done, you know, and I'm trying to copy what works for other people and apply it to my own journey. Yeah. Malabana, Amen.
0: let's try to wrap up with a question or two from the live stream. What do we have right now? Who's asking us questions? Shout out to our patrons in the live stream. Yeah,
3: We have a question from Lisa in my free time I enjoy sculpting and writing as much as I can but I'm not always sure when to write and when to sculpt any advice for knowing how to prioritize multiple creative passions
2: she needs to add another outlet
0: a music oh yeah third one (laughs) right a third one that's what she needs (laughs) well I mean this is is literally a binary here Jeff she's like hey I only have so much time do I write Mm -hmm. do I sculpt what do you tell someone
1: like this um, I mean, you know, there's no right answer. I would go where the energy is. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't. Uh, I find that if I fragment my time too much across multiple projects or disciplines, it just doesn't work. Yeah. I I like about ninety minutes. That's a good chunk of time. If I can create for ninety minutes straight, the out on one project, a book or whatever, mm-hmm. the output of that is typically better than you know three projects at thirty minutes apiece. Mm-hmm. And so I would rather you know, spend two or three days writing, you know, say you've got an hour to create. These are my writing days. These are my sculpting days versus trying to do all of it at once. Because you need some time to get into the words, to get in. Uh, Sculpture is like writing and that you're kind of, you're Mm. working with stuff and molding it into a thing that works and you don't know exactly. You're not following a schematic. Mm. So you've got to kind of play with it. You need a disciplined amount of time to do it. And I'd probably alternate days. That'd be my practical.
2: Yeah. Take. Or flip a coin on a day where mm-hmm. you're like, I'm gonna do one or yeah. the other, flip a coin. And as soon as that coin goes in the air, you're gonna know what you hope it's gonna land on.
1: And yeah. go with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I especially if there's not a lot of, on the line and you're you don't have a deadline for a, a patron who's commissioned you, I would go where the energy is. You yeah. know, if you want to spend a week working on this book and you're really getting into it, cool. If you're if the sculpture is taking off, I would follow that that energy. Yeah. Jeff, where, where should we send folks to uh, to hear more, read more, see more from you? Um, you can find me at my blog and website, goinswriter.com. You pronounced it right the whole time. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, it's often, you know, I live in the South, so they say Goins. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but, you know, like I'm I'm from Chicago, and so they would, uh, you know, middle school, they'd say, you know, groins. So, um, <laughs> you, you know, now imagine? you're going to remember, Goins writer, <laughs> not groins, groins writer. I'm going to buy that too. <laughs> It's funny, but I'm I'm imprinting my brand into your brain now. Mm. Goinswriter.com is where mm. all my things are just imagine what they did with Nicodemus in elementary school <laughs> <laughs> in high school tell
2: me I want to know
1: this is a whole new podcast <laughs> speaking of sex cults I'll, yeah right
2: I'll tell you I'll just tell you we did a we did a uh, TEDx talk in Whitefish Montana and they introduced me as Ryan Nicodemus
1: <laughs> <laughs> why
2: did, I mean not that, even a, that's that not mean, a joke that that's really, how they introduced that me that really should have gone Joshua Fields Melbourne and Ryan Nicodemus <laughs>
0: oh my gosh <laughs> it was uh, should have gone viral it was yeah. Sticky penis in school.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my <Nope>. god
2: <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Delete all
0: this Patrons forget that you heard all this <laughs> Alright uh, com. You can check out everything there We'll put a link to Real Artists Don't Starve In the show notes Jeff I want to acknowledge you man You um, You're a beautiful writer I love what you do uh, You're even even More beautiful thinker And I'm grateful that You were able to spend Some time with us today Amen Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. You're awesome, man. Keep up the great work. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you soon. See y'all.
2: Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it.